0: This is the way. The Vatican is
1: secretly preparing for the arrival of alien saviors. As crazy as that sounds, the exotheology is already being drafted for several years now. Jesuit astronomers have been posturing themselves and their church for disclosure, speaking openly about life on other planets and the accommodation of extraterrestrials into Catholic doctrine, even declaring that if given the opportunity,
2: they would eagerly baptize aliens. Welcome back to The World Over. In May, Pope Francis set tongues a-wagging when in a homily during his morning mass, he referenced a visit from extraterrestrials. The media ran with it and suggested that the Catholic Church was confirming the existence of intelligent life on other planets. Joining us tonight is a man who has literally pondered the mysteries of the heavens as part of his job. He is an astronomer at the Vatican Observatory and the president of the Vatican Observatory Foundation, a Jesuit and the co-author of the new book, Would You Baptize an Extraterrestrial? We're delighted to have joining us Brother Guy Consul Magno in studio. Great Great, to see you, Brother. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Pope Francis, during one of his morning homilies, had this to say. I'll share it with the audience. He said, Imagine if, for example, tomorrow an expedition of Martians came, green with long noses and big ears, just like children draw them, and were to say, I want to be baptized. What?" would happen here's the big question would you baptize an extraterrestrial only if she asks okay
0: (laughs) much of what is said in public by vatican officials concerning aliens is tongue-in-cheek facetious as if their interest in extraterrestrials is more of a playful fancy than a serious consideration but this is a very carefully calculated process of acclamation like the proverbial boiling frog the masses are gradually being conditioned for disclosure without even realizing it.
3: If you want to change somebody's worldview, you don't just come out of the gate with an argument that is diametrically opposed to everything they believe. You use the Fabian process of gradualism. You send out these little softballs like, well, if there was an alien intelligence, we would be willing to baptize them into the Catholic faith because after all, if they exist, they must be part of creation. So they're part of what God made. Little by little, they've changed that though. And they've they've went to, to now saying, it's very possible that the alien intelligence is morally superior to us because what we know about ourselves is that we are fallen, but we can't assume the same thing about the aliens Therefore, our space brothers may know more about God and the gospel than we do. Therefore, they will be coming here to baptize us into a better understanding of the Godhead. It won't be us baptizing them. So the language has continued to change. Eventually, they're going to claim that Jesus
1: was an extraterrestrial and that life was seated on this planet by a superior race of beings thousands of years ago. And they may even produce documents and artifacts that have been locked away in their archives and vaults for centuries to prove their claim. We're talking about the greatest deception in history and many Christians are going to fall for it because it will be so cunningly integrated into a biblical context and backed up with
3: physical evidence. What we know is that right now, some of the Opus Dei level theologians at the Pontifical Academy in Rome, as well as the Pope's University in Rome, are uh, working on doctrine that very specifically has to do with religious information of an extraterrestrial source and what the impact of that might be uh, on faith on Earth. For instance, Father Giuseppe tanzelaniti is an Opus Dei level theologian. He works at the Pontifical University, the, the, the Pope's University in Rome. And here's what he says. He says that uh, if extraterrestrial intelligence provides information, it may cause us have to rethink everything we have ever known and believed about the gospel. Here's a quote. He says, it would not immediately oblige the Christian to renounce his own faith in God simply on the basis of the reception of new unexpected information of a religious character from extraterrestrial civilizations. but that such a renunciation could come soon after as the new religious content originating from outside the earth is confirmed as reasonable and credible let me insert here i have no idea how you would be able to confirm extraterrestrial information that's going to alter the gospel uh, would be reasonable and acceptable incredible i don't know what, what that process is but let me keep going Uh, quote once the trustworthiness of the information has been verified the believer would have to reconcile such new information with the truth that he or she already knows and believes on the basis of the revelation of the one and triune God conducting a re-reading of the gospel inclusive of the new data they seem to be preparing themselves Uh, and not just well what if maybe someday I mean they seem to be intentionally creating dogma that is going to position the Roman Catholic Church to be at the forefront of an official disclosure moment the official voice piece well maybe these guys are talking about this uh, because of something that another Roman Catholic Uh, priest had talked about Monsignor Corrado Balducci. Corrado Balducci was an exorcist and theologian
1: of the Vatican Curia and the foremost demonologist of the church. During the pontificate of Pope John Paul II, ironically, Balducci also became the official spokesperson on the subject of UFOs and aliens.
3: Before he died, Corrado Balducci went on a series of Italian television programs talking about aliens, saying that they are real, that he had evidence that they are real. Furthermore, he said as an exorcist he could confirm that they are not demons and they are not angels, he said they are advanced humanoid-like intelligences, but even more Uh, outstanding was what happened just before he died he came to the United States he agreed to be part of a documentary film in which he said not only is the Vatican aware of the alien intelligence but there is an advanced guard of these aliens who are already here on earth and he said the Vatican is using their embassies from around the world both to study and survey the alien agenda, but also participating with them. Radio host Art Bell asked the former Jesuit priest, Malachi Martin, about why the
1: Vatican had muscled its way onto Mount Graham and what it was they were looking for in deep space. Malachi Martin's response ignited a firestorm of speculation.
2: All right, um, Father,
1: uh, the the Vatican has a very very great deal of power. That's
0: right.
1: um, We've talked about it. Uh, they have, uh, whether they admit it or not, a great deal of political power all around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that they did fairly recently was they muscled, and I, I do intend to use that word. Uh, yeah. They muscled their way onto a mountain in Arizona, Mount Graham. Mm -hmm. And they built an observatory on Mount Graham Mm -hmm. in connection with an Arizona University. However, the Vatican has the larger part of the control of this observatory. Yes. Looking at deep space things. That's right. Now why would they have done that, Father?
3: Because the mental the attitude mentality amongst uh, those who at the higher level the highest levels of vatican administration and vatican geopolitics know that uh now knowledge of what's going on in space and what's approaching us could be of great import in the next uh, five years ten years
0: carefully and well-chosen words, Father, thank you.
3: This guy was no Johnny-come-lately. Malachi Martin worked under three popes, was favored by them. He was a formidable polyglot. He could speak 17 languages and he could translate most extinct languages. He was the first guy that broke the news about how hundreds of young boys were being molested by what he called Luciferians, uh, satanic priests. Uh, that he said reached all the way to the highest levels of, of the Vatican among the College of Cardinals. And at the time, you know, Jesuits and others were saying, he's a chronic liar, he's making all this stuff up. Well, history proves that he was actually telling the truth. What was he right about with regards to Mount Graham? In 2009, the Vatican abruptly called an astrobiology study week But what was the subject matter? If you go back and Google this and read, they really only had one objective. They brought in 30 of the world's top astronomers. They brought in theologians to ask one question. What will the impact on faith, on religion be, given the disclosure or the discovery of advanced extraterrestrial intelligence? 90 days later, the Royal Academy now this is the oldest scientific body in the world they convene call all of the scientists from around the world including astronomers from the vatican and what do they want to talk about exactly the same thing the detection of extraterrestrial intelligence and the impact on society well we were wanting to get to the bottom of all of that why are they saying the things that they're saying and so chris putnam and i decided that the only way that we could know for sure was we had to go to the Jesuits ourselves. We had to go to their astronomers and specifically, if any way possible, we had to go to the top of Mount Graham. We get to the top of the mountain. We went first to the Vatican's Advanced Technology Telescope. Uh, We met with the Jesuit who was on duty. We asked him about Malachi Martin. We asked him about Corrado Bolducci. We asked him why. Uh, Jose Funes was out there saying we would baptize aliens. We have all of this on film. And some of his answers were astonishing, but the one that I found to be uh, the most intriguing was when he told us that the Vatican now only uses the advanced telescope for one purpose, one. He said, and that is to monitor exo-worlds on which they believe the conditions exist for extraterrestrial life now that might have been a real tell about what it is they're watching on the top of that mountain that they think might be approaching the earth as malachi martin said so we spend the morning there Um, but we also had a second agenda while we were there because the vatican's uh, advanced technology telescope is only one of three telescopes they also use the apparatus that is inside what's called the Large Binocular Telescope, which is the largest telescope in the world, and it's on the top of Mount Graham. Uh, So we left the VAT, Uh, we walked up to the top of the mountain where exists the Large Binocular Telescope, and that place was buzzing. And there were people everywhere in the building, there were a whole team of German astronomers who were there making adjustments to the telescope, There's a point where we're up, I think we're up seven stories or something. uh, And now we're looking down onto the top of the giant twin mirrors. And you see me and Chris standing there and the engineer standing there with a laser pointer and he points down to the middle of the twin mirrors where there's a large red device down in there. And you hear him saying, this is the Lucifer device. And that's exactly what they call it. In fact, they lovingly call it Lucy and they are constantly monitoring things with the Lucifer device. Now, they would not allow us to see what the Lucifer device was watching, but we were told that it was very specifically monitoring something in deep space. They were very uh, cryptic about it. Again, seemed to be echoing what Malachi Martin had said, that they were watching a specific something that is approaching uh, the Earth. We were also astonished that day when we went inside the control room and here's all these banks of monitors with images of deep space and as the engineer is talking about the lucifer device and deep space and all that he just blurts out something that we didn't even ask and he starts talking about how sometimes they have to wait for all of the ufos to get out of the way so that they could look at other things in space and we were astonished by that because We had intended not to even ask that question, but without asking, what the engineer is telling us is that it was so crowded with essentially an armada of UFOs that they had to literally sit there for hours waiting for these UFOs to move out of the way in very deep space so that this guy could focus on this one part of this exo-world. And we have a lot of this on film. He's just telling us this stuff. So we were we were really astonished how it's almost like Yon, another UFO. And they're not talking about space debris and asteroids. They're talking about what appear to be intelligently uh, operated craft of some type that evidently fill deep space. When we came down off the mountain, I was immediately contacted by a member of the Apache nation. He emailed me and he wanted me to know that the reason that the Apache did not want the Vatican and NASA and ASU on the top of Mount Graham was because Mount Graham is for them one of the four holiest mountains in all of the world. And it is for all indigenous Americans. Uh, and it is because he said in your language, he said, you would call this a Stargate a portal a doorway a strategic geographic location where he said entities have entered into and exited from our three-dimensional reality since the dawn of time well I got to tell you when he said that the conspiracy meter in my head went off the Richter scale right when I started thinking now about why that mountain and the Vatican because the Vatican has shown around the world, wherever these esoteric places are discovered, wherever metaphysical phenomenon seems to be predominant, wherever these ancient and even megalithic structures are found, they will move in, take over the land if at all possible, build facilities and churches and whatever in those very locations so that they can maintain a constant presence where these doorways, these portals have been found. Believe it or not,
1: stargates, portals, interdimensional doorways that open into supernatural realms are real. The discovery and control of the specific locations on Earth where these gates exist is one of the most classified deep black operations conducted by military and intelligence organizations around the world. The sorcery associated with accessing and opening these gates was the most dangerous and destructive knowledge given to mankind by fallen angels. Legends of gateways and portals opening to both heavenly and hellish realms frequently appear in the tablets, scrolls, and scripts of the ancient world, including both the Old and New Testaments of the Bible.
3: We wanted to examine whether or not it is a biblical premise that there are specific locations on the earth where there are gateways or doorways, vortexes that connect supernaturalism with the physical world. And once we started looking at whether or not that is biblical, it was amazing how it just kind of opened up in the scripture. Now we started seeing everywhere, right? Genesis 28. Jacob has a vision and he sees, now in the King James version of the Bible, it's called a ladder, but the Hebrew there is very interesting in that it seems to describe a spiral. So was it like a spiral staircase? That's what some people have suggested, but others have said a vortex, which happens to be kind of an international symbol that you find across all cultural barriers as a symbol of a vortex, right? But in any case, Jacob sees angels ascending and descending from heaven. He comes out of that vision, he is so shook up because this is so vivid that he gets out anointing oil, he's trembling, right? And he anoints the entire place, but he says something very important. Now, a lot of people say that he said, this is the house of God. But if you read that in the Hebrew, that's not what he says. He says, there is a gate here to the house of God. There is a gateway, a doorway here. Well, we found that once you started thinking about that concept, it spanned from the Old Testament through the New Testament. Jesus arrives, he's talking about the windows of heaven and how from henceforth you'll see the windows of heaven open and angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. It's an Old and New Testament principle. Now, we also found that like the Apache Indian have done, The scripture often combines the location of these gateways to mountainous regions. Remember how Moses, whenever he's going to meet with God, he has to go to the top of the Mount Sinai. Look at how when Jesus returns, it says his feet will touch the top of the Mount of Olives and then he will descend down to the earth in the apocryphal book of enoch it talks about the 200 watchers that descended in the days of jared but how do they come down they come down from the top of mount hermon down into the valley of the plains and then they begin their illegal activity jesus later years later is standing at the base of mount hermon he is standing there with his disciples in caesarea philippi and that's the location where the greeks by that time had built mystical doorways into the base of that mountain, actually in commemoration of the legends that dated back to the watchers descending on that mountain. And it's there where Jesus is standing with his disciples and he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. In the ninth
1: chapter of the book of Revelation, A star falls from heaven to the earth. He is given the key to the bottomless pit. When he opens
3: the abyss, a great smoke arises and all hell breaks loose. And up out of this gateway of the earth come these terrible insectoids that begin tormenting unrighteous humanity, right? That's on the the face of the earth. Many people though don't know that there's something very intriguing in that same chapter. Chapter 9 of uh, Revelation ends by saying something extraordinary. It says that those people who are being tortured by these insectoids, these transgenic beings that come up out of the underworld, who have a king over them called Abaddon or Apollyon, it says, and yet they repented not of their sorceries and the a greek word their sorcery is pharmakia now what is pharmakia in the biblical context and the reason it was forbidden a pharmakia is the use of technology and sorcery for the express purpose of opening a doorway which God has closed in order to put ourselves in contact with what is behind it. It's the use of sorcery to open metaphysical doorways, gateways. So imagine this, that in Revelation 9, where the gates of the earth open and these terrible things come up and start torching humanity, it ends by saying, and yet, they repented not of their pharmakia, of their effort to open doorways to the metaphysical world. So it's almost as if God is saying, you asked for it, you got it.
1: We are approaching another Tower of Babel moment on the earth. Another Nimrod is arising. The rebellion and sorcery of the Sumerians is reigniting in the hearts of men. Soon forbidden gates will be opened and the man of sin will appear. Even now, theological foundations are being laid in anticipation of the arrival of a superior alien race. The fish head priests of Babylon are preparing to fulfill their occult destiny and welcome from heaven, the return of the gods. who control the past determine the future. The reality of the pre-flood age has been concealed, covered over and covered up so that the truth of prehistory will remain forgotten and the world will be doomed to repeat it. God said that his people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. The great deception of the future will take advantage of the ignorance of the past. Only the truth can prepare us for the lie that's coming.
0: For thousands of years, Luciferians have been envisioning the time in which we now live. The consummation of their ancient plan is finally drawing near. The lost knowledge of the Watchers has been recovered. Like Osiris, the Golden Age will be resurrected, and fallen angels will lead mankind in one last insurrection.
1: History is being repeated. The days of Noah are returning and men's hearts will fail them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming upon the earth.
4: Back in 2005, I was actually stationed or deployed to Qatar. It was a completely normal mission for us. We were not alerted for anything abnormal. It was in the middle of the day. Uh, I remember uh, coming into a base in Afghanistan called Bagram. Back in those days, it was pretty austere. It was an old Russian air base that we were using. Um, It's basically built in a bowl in the mountains where you have to stay high right up in the last minute and then you basically come screaming back down to to land. Uh, The area to the side of it was called the Valley of Death because during uh, the Soviet days with the uh, Mujahideen, they had fired their rockets into a lot of the uh, helicopters so you could see all kinds of uh, wrecks and stuff in the valley below, which for the most part I didn't pay attention to because I was a little busy getting the airplane on the ground safely uh we landed and uh basically was told to taxi to the very end of the tarmac and and like i said it was middle of the day very hot i remember that we opened the doors and unloaded the equipment that we had brought in Uh, and then we were met at the aircraft by uh what we later on called the babysitters but uh they kind of introduced themselves and said hey no cameras uh, nobody's taking pictures here we're uh, moving some high value stuff Uh, When the load got there, uh, we're very, of course, uh, curious to see what it was, because that's just the way you are when you're told that you're not allowed to have uh, a camera. Uh, They say this thing had been dead for maybe a day or two, uh, but it stunk. And when I say stunk, I've smelled dead things before, but this had a more of a, I want to say a musky stink, kind of a, not really a decay decay, but more of a... If somebody hadn't taken a shower in like 10 years, type of a musty, uh, musky stink is all I can tell you. And it was basically a dead guy. And this guy was extremely large. And when I say large, uh, our pallets are basically, if I remember correctly, about nine by 12 feet or so. This guy was laying in a fetal position on the pallet. Uh, So he, and he filled the pallet. Uh, we estimated his size at approximately 12 to 10 feet tall. Uh, I did see his skin color. I was expecting somebody of more Arabic descent, uh, being in Afghanistan and all. I know he was dead, but he was very pale, very white. Another thing that uh, us and the rest of the crew did was we took our feet. We, he was in a fetal position, so you could take your feet and put it kind of, you could see where his feet were there, and they were, they were wrapped up. He did not have shoes on, but he had like, uh, looked like he was wrapping them in some kind of a canvas type stuff but we were sticking our feet up next to his feet and his feet were extremely big. We know that the the standard weight on one of those pallets is uh, about 1,500 pounds and I do remember that the loadmaster did the weights and it was around 1,100 pound guy. The pallet sits on dunnage, you know what dunnage is? It's uh, basically like railroad ties so that you can get a forklift underneath it and pick it up. So it was on dunnage and basic dunnage is like maybe a 4x4. And then the pallet is, say, yay thick. It's actually aluminum and balsa wood. And uh, this guy, I mean, laying down was very, very wide. I mean, and he was, like I said, he's in a fetal position and you go up and just, you hit it and of course he's under a tarp and all that, I understand that, but he was one dense, he was a dense guy. Uh, We questioned the babysitters of, hey, where'd you get this guy? And uh, some of the army guys there with him uh, relayed to us that uh, this guy had, I guess, been living up in the mountains uh, next to a village where the villagers basically treated him like a god. I did infer that they were uh, making sacrifices to this guy because they said he was, they found bones of people. The giant supposedly, like I said, I was not there, supposedly killed the first team that they came across he was extremely big and fast and agile for a guy that size they sent up another team and when the second team went in there to get him supposedly he had already started to basically eat on the team that uh, that had been killed the first time they then grabbed a helicopter and the helicopter brought him down where we picked him up after we loaded the giant, it was just a standard, uh, standard mission back. We took him all the way back to Al uh, Udeed in Qatar where he was transloaded onto a, another airplane, I believe it was a C-17. Uh, I was done with my mission then, I got away from it, I was done. I did ask some questions later of you know, where it might have gone and as the grapevine goes, it was probably taken back to the United States and the words I heard were right pat, but again, I don't know. Several years after my uh, deployments to Afghanistan, something very strange happened to me um, that is somewhat related to this. I was uh, basically TDY to Kirtland Air Force Base, which is out in Albuquerque. Uh, I was out with my JAG at the time, and there was a uh, Navajo Native American uh, sitting basically in the restaurant that we're in. It was also a bar. It was actually Kelly's, uh, Kelly's Brew Pub. And uh, this Native American guy, out of nowhere, he was talking to us, very friendly guy. And out of nowhere, he s- asked me if I knew what a Native American sing was. And um, no, I didn't at the time. I do now because I looked it up. But uh, he says, I-, I have to sing for you. And he put his hand on me and started a Native American prayer, if you will. And I thought, wow, this is very strange. Uh, but it was cool as well. My, my uh, jag that I was with actually took out her, uh, her apple. Uh, iPhone and started to film it and he stopped and said, no, no, not on film, not on film. And She put it away and he sang the prayer. And here's where it gets very strange. He started talking about, did I know that there were giants out in the Sandia mountains? And he said, they're out there in the mountains still. And the earth had swallowed them up and he goes, watch out. He says, someday they're going to come back. They're going to come back. I then uh, took him aside and said, Hey, as a matter of fact, I've seen these things. They're real. At least I think I've seen these things uh and i basically conveyed to him the story he just took it in stride and said yes they're real they're absolutely real and he said something like if i remember correctly like the earth had swallowed them up but soon the earth will spit them back out and soon he said soon they're coming back